Chapter forty six of Just as I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just as I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter forty six A Land of Chimneys and Smoke. Lizzie turned her back upon Tangley Manor that rainy July afternoon with a heavy heart. Pride gave her a kind of spurious force. She had always been a girl of resolute will able to conquer difficulties to set a curb upon feeling to achieve and to endure but never in the past had she so much needed courage and determination as she needed them to-day she had made up her mind that to remain another day in morton blake's house would be to sacrifice womanly honour and self-respect she had been openly charged in the grossest words with scheming to win him for her husband her only justification in the eyes of these insolent girls her only possible assertion of her own dignity lay in immediate departure in putting herself out of morton's reach for the rest of her life or at any rate till i am old and grey she said to herself as she put on her neat little felt hat and comfortable waterproof ulster perhaps thirty or forty years hence when i fought my way through this difficult world and gained a decent position by my own labour i may feel justified in seeking him out and asking him to take up the thread of our broken friendship he'll be famous by that time i hope a cabinet minister the saviour of his country perhaps oh how proud i should be of his reputation even when my feelings were blunted by age and hard work her nerves were strung to their utmost tension her brain was in that excited state in which vivid thoughts and fancies follow each other in swiftest succession poor morton she thought with a sigh as she paused absently in the task of packing her travelling bag i believe he will miss me a little if it was painful to think of leaving morton how much more bitter must be the thought of leaving her friend and protectress the woman who had given her all a mother's love and thoughtful care all a sister's sympathy and companionship lizzie dared not let her mind dwell upon the idea of separation from aunt dora she sustained herself with the hope that their parting need not be lifelong. They might meet and be together at times and seasons. It was only her severance from Morton which must be lasting. Not for the world would I let those cruel girls think that I was acting a part, that I was only playing at going away, she said to herself. I must act in such a way as to make them know and feel that I am thorough even in her flurry and confusion of mind she was able to think rationally of the plan of her future life she had received her quarter's allowance from miss blake only a few days ago and she had the whole amount in hand five and twenty pounds with that sum in her pocket she felt equal to finance the situation until she could find some kind of remunerative employment for her head or her hands without either arrogance or vanity she knew that she was clever with both hands and head it was an unknown thing for her to be setting out on a journey alone and it was with a strange and desolate feeling that she stood at the crossroads bag and umbrella in hand waiting till the omnibus from osthorpe should come blundering and creaking along the muddy lane and heave to under the signpost yonder the coachman pulling up his horse with a sudden clutch of the reins astonished at the unwonted spectacle of a passenger yes it was strange and dreary to be alone lovingly as she had leaned on aunt dora in the past lizzie hardman had learned long ago to think and work for herself and she had a brave independent spirit 
"'I had rather bear separation from all I love than be thought capable of meanness,' she said to herself. A jolting half-hour's progress in the mouldy little omnibus, which smelt of poultry-yard and stable, and then she found herself at the high clear station, an unlovely building, offering nothing cheering for the eye to rest upon save the pictured presentment of a newly developed watering-place, unknown to the mind of man, but provided with a bay of golden sand, a crescent of Italian villas, a squadron of gaily painted bathing-machines, emerald verdure on the very edge of the beach, and sky and sea of sapphire hue. It remained for the adventurous spirit who tried this happy hunting-ground to discover that the Italian villas were still in skeleton, while the existing settlement was a squalid fishing village, that the drainage was a disgrace to a civilised community, the golden sand a snare, and the sapphire sea a delusion. Lizzie Hardman looked at the vivid attractions of St. Clement on the Ouse without seeing them, and then she walked up and down the dismal little platform, and wished that the Osthorpe omnibus had not been so over-considerate in giving its passengers a wide margin of leisure before the starting of the train. But the bell rang at last, and with the help of a friendly porter, Lizzie found a comfortable corner in a second-class carriage. She had always travelled first-class hitherto, but she began her new life in the economic manner in which she would be obliged to continue it. "'I ought to have gone third-class,' she said to herself, as she counted the change out of half a sovereign, and found that her ticket had cost her two and tenpence. But I've never been accustomed to sitting with dirty people. I shall have to educate myself down to my altered circumstances. Perhaps, after all, when I have once got over the pain of parting from those I love, I may be happier as a lonely waif fighting my way in the world than I could ever have been as a dependent in Morton's house. Oh, those girls! How they've made me suffer! She looked back at her life during the last four years, since she and Morton's sisters had grown to womanhood, and she almost wondered at herself for her patient endurance of all the petty slights and deliberate snubs that Clementine and Horatia had inflicted upon her. "'I hope I'm not mean-spirited for having borne it all so tamely,' she thought. "'But no, I had auntie's love to make up for all their unkindness. It was auntie's pleasure I had to study.' To have resented such small injuries would have been only temper and false pride. They never insulted me until today. She sat looking out of the window at a country which was altogether new to her. She had never been at Blackford since her infancy. Aunt Dora had thought it well to make the severance between Lizzie and her brother and sisters as complete as possible. She was to occupy a different place in the world. By and by, after her adopted mother's death, when she should find herself amply provided for, she might be as bountiful as she liked to her family, but she could never be one of them. Education, surroundings, associations would make a gulf between them. There was no pride or hardness in Dora Blake's nature, but she felt that half-measures here would be a mistake. "'You must not think me unkind, darling,' she said one day, when Lizzie had asked permission to go to Blackford and see her brother and sisters, who wrote her such nice letters in a copperplate hand with very few faults in spelling, and who were always so prettily grateful for her presence. "'But when I took you for my adopted daughter, I told your poor father that you were to belong to me entirely, that my relations were to be your relations, that you were to be a Blake and not a Hardman.' 
and that I should hold myself responsible for your prosperity and happiness in life. She can never be more than a friend at a distance to her brother and sisters, I told him. Your father was quite willing that it should be so. He told me that he gave you to me as a free gift for the love of his father's bosom friend and companion, Geoffrey Blake, and that you should be as much my own property as if you were a little negro girl bought in an African marketplace. Lizzie had obeyed her adopted mother, submitting to be guided by her superior wisdom, yet not without regret for the brothers and sisters who were never to have any intimate share in her life. All the kindness that it was in her power to show them she had freely given, and her letters had been full of affection for the kindred whose faces she had never seen. Thus it was that the country between Highclere and Blackford was new to her, and she watched the passing landscape with curious eyes. For some time the scenery was purely pastoral, low-lying meadows, meandering streams, a wooded hillside in the far distance, water-mills, sleepy villages, all the poetry of rustic life. Then the whole character of the scene changed all at once, and Lizzie beheld a district which was to her as a new world, a sudden revelation of ugliness under a smoke-tarnished sky. Brickfields, chemical works, tall chimney-shafts, gas-works, bone-burning works, all the hideousness of a manufacturing neighbourhood. But worst of all was the baneful atmosphere, tainted with all the variety of nauseous odours, dull with smoke, oppressive to the lungs, depressing to the spirits, thick and slab like the witch's gruel, an atmosphere in which hope and joy must surely drop their wings and expire like a pigeon in an exhausted receiver. And now the open wastes, the brickfields were all gone, and the train was panting its slow way over the crowded housetops of a dingy city. And now it was in the smoke-begrimed terminus, doors were slamming, porters shouting, and Lizzie Hardman knew that she had reached her destination. Having nothing but her bag to carry, she would not indulge in the luxury of a cab. She had never been in London or any really large town, her travels having been confined to sundry excursions to pretty seaside places and to the English lakes with Aunt Dora. She had therefore no idea of distances, and fancied that her Uncle Joseph's house could not be far off. She asked a porter to direct her to Milton Street. Well, that'll be in the potteries, answered the man. It's a longish way. Hadn't you better have a fly? Oh, no, thank you. I'm a good walker. The man directed her. It sounded a long way, and after she'd come to the ultimate fuel of his direction, she was to inquire of somebody else, who would instruct her in the rest of the way. The rain was over, the sun was setting. A magnificent sunset in the country, no doubt, but here only a lurid patch of red gleaming athwart a bank of lowering cloud. Lizzie walked briskly down a long, smoky street, where shabby shops and shabbier private houses alternated, and where the dirtiest children her eye had ever beheld were at play in the gutters. Her soul sank within her at the foulness, the unlovely sights which greeted her on every side, and as she trudged bravely along, following the porter's direction, now passing the blackened wall of a factory, and now walking beside the slate-coloured water of a canal, she kept repeating wildly, with maddening iteration, and to the beat of her own footsteps, God made the country, and man made the town. It was a weary way to the district known as the Potteries, 
which seemed to have been so christened for no particular reason save the whim of the builder, inasmuch as there were no potters in the place. To Lizzie it seemed the longest walk she had ever taken in the whole course of her life, and yet her light footsteps had carried her many a mile by lane and meadow, by heath and hill. The narrow, monotonous streets seemed interminable. Of the factories and ironworks, the bone-burning and the soap-boiling, there appeared no end. Lizzie fancied she must have been travelling through that dull grey world for hours when a foundry clock struck the third quarter after eight, and she knew that it was only three quarters of an hour since she had left the terminus. And now she was at the end of her journey. This was Milton Street in the Potteries, evidently a new district, a raw, bare-looking street, tolerably wide, tolerably clean and tidy, but hideously flat and monotonous, never a porch or veranda or jutting window to diversify the plain brick fronts of the square eight-roomed houses, never a flowering creeper to beautify the dull brickwork. Lizzie knocked at the door of twenty-seven, her Uncle Joseph's number. Her heart beat hard and fast as she stood waiting for admission. How would her kindred receive her? Would they be warm and loving to her in her desolation? Would they reproach her for having kept herself aloof from them in the past? It was a painful ordeal to meet those of her own flesh and blood, so near and yet so distant, strangers whose faces she had never seen within her memory, sisters who had been nestled in the same motherly bosom. "'I hope they'll love me a little in spite of everything,' she said to herself. End of chapter 46